0: I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount. On your subscription by heading to docketwise.com slash immigration review so they know we sent you and as always this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you my dear colleagues to excel in court so without further ado let's start the review The circuits were quiet this week, dead quiet, until they regained their voice on Friday with a vengeance. WTF circuits. That's just how it goes sometimes. So I've got four petition for review cases for you, along with the 11th Circuit's decision adjudicating the immigration policies of the one who very well may be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Episode 155 of the podcast. Here we go. Starting off with the Second Circuit. Who's back to publish Mallets V. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on April 14, 2023. This decision is about credibility. Mr. Mallets is from Ukraine. And my my, Mr. Mallets is actually Mr. YIM from the Presidential Decision Matter of YIM, published by the BIA in 2019 BP. So what we have before us is a direct petition for review of a published BIA decision. Mr. Malice is from Ukraine, but entered the United States in 2014 with a false Hungarian passport. He did that because Hungary is a visa waiver country, and so Hungarian citizens didn't need visas to come to the U.S. temporarily to visit. Ukrainians did, and do. Less than a year later, Mr. Malice applied for asylum and related relief. As the basis, he claimed that he had refused to serve in the Ukrainian military because of his Russian Orthodox religion, which prescribed against taking human life. Ukraine had let him avoid the draft in 2007 and 2008, but when Russia invaded the eastern provinces in 2014, he was summoned again. He requested alternative service again, as he had in 2007, but this time he was beaten by military personnel. A few days later, he was beaten unconscious at a checkpoint, and this is all in August 2014, quote, by Ukrainian police and members of the right sector, a nationalist organization as a suspected pro-Russian separatist, end quote. Mr. Malice filed a complaint with a local prosecutor the next month. Then he was beaten again in retaliation by men affiliated with the right sector, quote, dragging him to a nearby river where they began to suffocate him and threatened him with death if he made further reports to the police, end quote. Ukraine to Hungary and Hungary to America. Meanwhile, members of the right sector continued to threaten his mother in Ukraine. When it all eventually went before the immigration judge, the IJ didn't believe Mr. Melats and made an adverse credibility finding in February 2019 well before that eastern war in Ukraine turned into Vladimir Putin's full-fledged invasion that has engulfed the region. To make the adverse credibility finding, the IJ identified five specific areas of concern, including testimony and statements regarding 1. Mr. Malice traveled to Hungary to obtain a fraudulent passport. 2. The date on which he was first attacked. 3. The duration of medical treatments following those attacks. 4. His rank upon discharge from military service. And 5. His dates of employment as a truck driver. The IJ also faulted Mr. Malitz for a lack of corroboration the BIA affirmed by published decision. Here, the Second Circuit has remanded, taking all the issues I just discussed one by one, so we will as well. Deference to the agency, explained the Second Circuit, is not blindness to error. And so, taking the issues one by one, it became a very fact-specific analysis. The court explained that the first two reasons relied upon by the IJ, the trip to Hungary and the date of the first attack in Ukraine, were simply errors by the immigration judge. The IJ believed Mr. Malitz inconsistent in failing to disclose his trip to Hungary in his asylum application, but Mr. Maltz's quote, original asylum application states, literally in capital letters, that he stayed for one day in Hungary where I received Hungarian passport, end quote. The word literally, and all caps, provided by the court. Then Mr. Maltz amended that application and was quite clear about what he had done in Hungary he admitted to having obtained a fraudulent Hungarian passport. Really, based on this decision at least, it seems like complete error by the immigration judge. In any event to the Second Circuit, omissions are far less probative of credibility than are actual inconsistencies. Regarding the first attack in Ukraine, quote, there was no inconsistency, end quote. Mr. Malitz was attacked twice in August 2014. The IJ appears to think it was just once, and that Mr. Mallett mixed up those dates. But there were two attacks, quote, he was attacked on both dates, End quote. No inconsistency. Moving along to the medical treatment, Mr. Mallett submitted corroborating doctor's notes, and quite frankly, as to the duration issue identified by the IJ, the Second Circuit believes the IJ simply misunderstood the testimony. Plus, if anything, Mr. Malletz testified to having received medical treatment for a shorter period of time than what was stated in his initial papers. To the court, then, this is trivial at best, quote, Logically, fabrication in this context would tend to involve exaggerating the severity of wounds sustained and the concomitant extent of treatment from a politically motivated attack, end quote. The fact that the medical treatment might have gotten shorter when he testified wasn't overly relevant to Mr. Malletz's credibility similarly with the final two purported inconsistencies. To the court, they had nothing to do with Mr. Malauz's asylum eligibility, and so they were not material. In any event, it appears to have been based on a misreading of the testimony and a difference in word choice. While it is true that after the Real Idea Act, immigration judges can rely on any inconsistency, even where the inconsistency doesn't go to the heart of an asylum claim, the IJ here expressly deemed these latter inconsistencies, quote, central and material, end quote. So the fact that these inconsistencies, the truck driving, etc., were in fact, quote, irrelevant, end quote, weighs in favor of vacating the adverse credibility finding. Nice argument, counsel. And to top it all off, appears that there were translation issues. All of that alone was sufficient for a remand, but the Second Circuit then turned to the corroboration finding, which really, it seems, was what the BIA's precedential holding in this decision was all about. And it is no more. The IJ and the BIA had faulted Mr. Mallets for not submitting documents from his church to corroborate his religiosity. Yet at the hearing, Mr. Malitz's counsel was prepared to offer testimony from three available witnesses, including Mr. Malitz's wife and two Russian Orthodox priests on this very issue. End quote. But the IJ said, quote, I don't need to hear that, so there's no need to put that witness on the stand. End quote. Wow. Mr. Malitz's attorney persisted. The IJ refused again. Then the IJ said, quote, Look, Here's a rule for trial practice. When a judge makes a ruling, if your arguments are cut off, which happens regularly in trials, stop your arguments. Once the judge stops your arguments, your arguments are preserved for all purposes. In a way, it's as crazy as it sounds. There is an advantage to a judge shutting down your arguments, because you then not only have the one or two arguments that you were going to raise, but you have any potential arguments that you didn't raise. So you're protected so don't get frustrated if I shut down your arguments. It's just that I were now at noon and were nowhere near done in the case." End quote. The IJ then denied the case and faulted Mr. Malitz for not corroborating the issue of his religiosity. It appears that those shut down arguments have now come home to roost on appeal. This was all so problematic in fact to the Second Circuit that the court seems to believe it was a due process violation. In a great quote for appeals, quote, Preclusion of testimony proves more problematic, whereas here, the IJ excludes available testimony, yet at the same time, faults petitioner for failing to offer corroborating evidence, End quote. Bit of a barn burner of a decision, and of a precedential BIA decision, no less. If you know, you know, that makes matter of why I am Immigration Review Podcast designated zombie precedent. Remarkable difference between the BIA and the Second Circuit's decision in this case, by the way. Congratulations, John Giamattio of Immigration Legal Program, Lutheran Legal Services of New York, for petitioner. An observation. I don't know who the IJ was, and I know very little about the New York Immigration Court, but I think any reader would say that the IJ isn't coming off great in this decision. If I'm trying to reconcile it by giving some benefits of the doubt, I might point out that in 2019, when the IJ made the decision, the Trump attorneys general were placing highly burdensome case completion requirements on IJs that maybe, just maybe, might have led the IJ to behave in this manner. The Second Circuit also, quote, recognized the extraordinary caseload burdens faced by IJs, end quote. Don't forget the real effect EOAR policy was having on IJs during the Trump years because decisions like this might sometimes be the result. And that is Malitz v. Garland. Next is Mejia Vega v. USCIS et al., published by the Ninth Circuit on April 14th, 2023. This is an interesting one about U-visas and waivers. Mr. Vega is from Colombia, entered the United States in 1981 and became a lawful permanent resident in 1990. His wife's a U.S. citizen, as are his two children. But in the 1990s, he was convicted of possession of a controlled substance for sale in California. He was placed in deportation proceedings, where at the time, who knows, he may have had an argument, but he didn't appear for his hearing, and he was ordered deported in absentia. And he was physically deported. He re-entered unlawfully, quote, shortly thereafter to help care for his two young children and his wife, who had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and was experiencing medical complications from the recent birth of their son, end quote. And he lived in the United States for many years afterwards. Interesting enough. But then in May 2008, while volunteering at a school festival in California, a shooter began firing at attendees of the festival. Seems to happen a lot in the United States. Mr. Mejiavega, quote, tackled him and knocked his gun away. He also helped other good Samaritans restrain the shooter and detain him until law enforcement officers arrived. Following the shooting, Mr. Vega cooperated with law enforcement and provided investigators with information about the crime, which led to the ultimate conviction of the shooter on counts of attempted murder, assault with a firearm, and felon in possession of a firearm, end quote. Nevertheless, in 2010, DHS detained Mr. Mejavega and reinstated his 1996 final order of deportation. Mr. Mejiavega immediately applied for a U visa to try and prevent that. And it seems that he received the certification from law enforcement that he had indeed assisted in the prosecution of a crime. A serious and violent crime, nonetheless. But U visa applicants such as Mr. Mejiavega also need a waiver of their inadmissibility. I don't do U-Visas a lot, but often, as I understand it, U-Visa waivers are approved because, by definition, these people have certifications that they've helped law enforcement. But not in this case. USCIS denied the waiver as a matter of discretion. So Mr. Vega sued in federal court. The district court judge dismissed his lawsuits on jurisdictional grounds, and in this decision, the Ninth Circuit affirmed. Not a Patel issue, but it's close. To the Ninth Circuit, one of the INA's many jurisdiction stripping provisions, INA Section 242 a 2 quote, bars judicial review of discretionary determinations involving the agency's exercise of pure or unfettered discretion, end quote. That's what the court believed was at issue in this case. The court held that immigration law bars review of denials of waivers under INA section two hundred twelve D three A double I, the waiver at issue here, quote, because the statute commits the decision to the agency's sole discretion, end quote. And oh, by the way, if like here the non citizen is subject to reinstatement, there is no way for an immigration judge to ever get at the issue. There is in effect no review. USCIS has the last word, no matter how egregious their discretionary denial of the waiver. This is what the courts are beginning to say is okay. The reason, essentially, said the court, is that U visa waivers under INA Section 212 D3AII are simply too standardless. Similar to what's been said about the Adam Walsh act adjudications in other cases. No standard and pure discretion, a bit counterintuitively, means no federal court review. It didn't matter to the Ninth Circuit that the BIA and the regulations have given some standards for discretion. Here, the statute is, quote, wholly discretionary, end quote, and that's what governs. The Ninth Circuit concludes by stating, quote, By all accounts, Mr. Vega demonstrated remarkable courage by intervening to stop an active shooter, and his efforts to care for his wife are equally worthy of praise, end quote. Nevertheless, he shall be removed without an Article III court reviewing the action of an administrative agency. To quote a friend of the pod and the podcast's host, this one hurts, a bona fide hero, and with great counsel and a favorable panel. And that is Mejia Vega v. USCIS. Moving right along to Doy Duck, the Attorney General of the United States, published by the Third Circuit on April 14th, 2023. This case is about expungement. And no, not your former kitchen cleaning product that may also help with bad breath. No, this case is about the criminal kind of expungement. Mr. Doy Duck is from Turkey. And no, not the. Okay, I'll stop. He came to the United States on a visitor visa in 2010 and overstayed. Then, a year later, he, quote, took part in a night of heavy drinking with his then-girlfriend, end quote, who ended up getting stabbed in the stomach. Mr. Doyduck was arrested after he freaked out and called his boss for help. All related charges against Mr. Doiduck were dropped when the victim and the boss refused to testify, and everything was later expunged, quote, under a Pennsylvania law that requires expungement after 18 months passed without action, end quote. Mr. Doiduck eventually married a U.S. citizen, but he was placed in removal proceedings for overstaying the visa. Naturally, he applied to adjust to lawful permanent residence status. Totally eligible, but adjustment is discretionary and the officer who arrested Mr. Doyduck in the stabbing incident came to immigration court to testify in 2017, and testify he did to some very incriminating facts. The police report was also admitted into evidence. The decision doesn't describe how cross-examination went, but Mr. Doyduck did provide substantial evidence and testimony about his good character, now, all these years later the immigration judge of the BIA weighed the arrest and the incident heavily and denied adjustment as a matter of discretion. So Mr. Doidak petitioned for review to the Third Circuit. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast may be saying to themselves, wait just a minute, glorious Kevin. Doesn't Patel and the jurisdiction stripping statute bar review of the agency's discretionary denial of adjustment of status? Indeed it does. But to the court, Mr. Joyduck brought a legal challenge to the IJ and the BIA's decision, so the Third Circuit can hear those issues. Huzzah! A decently favorable Patel finding. Didn't save Mr. Doiduk, though. The legal issue that got Mr. Doyduck around Patel was that the IJ shouldn't have been able to rely on the criminal arrest or anything surrounding it because everything was expunged but to quote the court, quote, an expungement order eliminates the legal record of an event, but it does not erase history, end quote. Kind of like what we just discussed in that Ninth Circuit case, an immigration judge's discretion with adjustment of status is quite broad. More importantly, the INA's text, quote, does not forbid IJs from considering facts underlying expunged charges, end quote. The Third Circuit notes that the Attorney General could do so in a precedential decision or through regulation, but he and she has not done so yet. Now true, in matter of her the BIA, quote, announced a list of adverse and favorable factors to guide the exercise of administrative discretion in status adjustments, end quote. BIA also seemed in awry to mention that adjustment of status should generally be granted as a matter of discretion, by the way. But that doesn't really answer the question before the court to the Third Circuit. Matter of Era kind of does, though. In that 1995 decision, the BIA, quote, reversed an IJ's denial of discretionary relief in part because the IJ credited a prior incident memorialized only by an arrest report noting that prosecution was declined, end quote. Getting warmer. Not warm enough, though. To the Third Circuit and other circuits, Menor-Vereguin stands for the proposition that, quote, when arrest reports lack independent corroboration, IJs should be hesitant to credit them with substantial weight in an equitable balancing analysis. That is a sliding scale, not a categorical ban. End quote. In this case, and unlike in other police report cases of late on the podcast, there's a lot of corroboration for the police report, including the officer testifying in court. At base, IJs can consider arrests in their discretionary analysis, even if the arrest is expunged. But wait, said Mr. Duck, Pennsylvania is special. He argued that, quote, Pennsylvania's expungement statute, the Criminal History Record Information Act, 18 Pennsylvania Code Statute, Section 9101-9183, creates a state law privacy interest that bars federal IJs from considering not only expunged criminal charges, but also the underlying incident itself, end quote. Smart argument. And true, this law makes it such that individuals need not disclose their arrest if asked in Pennsylvania apparently. However, said the Third Circuit, that doesn't bar others, like ICE and IJs, from using the information. Interesting issue, though, if the only evidence of the arrest had been questions by the immigration judge or the trial attorney, and if Mr. Doyduck had decided to remain silent relying on that Pennsylvania law. I wonder if that law would have barred the IJ from making an adverse inference. A highly unlikely, if interesting, hypothetical. Anyway, the IJ can rely on the arrest report. The court also denied Mr. Doiduck's due process argument and so denied the petition for review. And that is Duck, the Attorney General of the United States. And now, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Journey Business Plans. Journey is the leading business immigration plan writing company in the United States. Ten years. And they know immigration. Heck, they started as an E2 company themselves. Journey prides itself on its responsiveness and overall customer service, preparing business plans for E2, EB2 NIW, L1, EB5, and much more. If you don't yet know about Journey and don't want to listen to just me, ask your colleagues. Or even better, try them out. Visit www.journey.com and use promo code REVJOURNEY30 for a 30% discount on your first business plan. That's R-E-V-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y-3-0. Or click on the link in the show notes. This podcast is also sponsored by Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would otherwise not qualify for traditional loans certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fee or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. Welcome back to the First Circuit We Go. Alzeban v. Garland, published by The First on April 14th, 2023. Mr. Alzeben is from Jordan. After entering the United States as a B-1 non-immigrant, he became a conditional permanent resident as a result of his marriage to a U.S. citizen. And within the two years, the couple jointly filed to remove the condition as immigration law requires. That would have made Mr. Alzeban a full-fledged lawful permanent resident but when they filed the petition to remove the condition, and despite of course believing the marriage legitimate the first time around, the USCIS field office in Boston believed the marriage not in fact bona fide and so denied the petition. USCIS said that that terminated Mr. Alzebend's conditional lawful permanent resident status, and USCIS placed him in removal proceedings. But really, he still has CLPR status until an immigration judge says he doesn't anymore, under the law. In immigration court, Mr. Alzeben asked the IJ to remove the condition, as is his right. De novo review of the bona fides of his marriage, by law. Gets a bit complicated here, though, because before that first hearing, the couple actually divorced. Mr. Alzeben then, as is his right, made a new filing with USCIS by himself, a petition to waive the joint filing requirement based on the bona fides of his marriage. Pretty much the same standards the initial joint petition, but just filed on his own but because it's all based on the bona fides of the marriage, Boston expectedly denied the waiver of the joint filing requirement and again refused to remove Mr. Alzebend's conditional lawful permanent residence and It was that that the i j in Boston adjudicated the i j denied the waiver request and refused to remove the conditional status on Mr. Alzebend's lawful permanent residence. See, apparently during the USCIS interview, Mr. Alzabend's wife, quote, struggled to remember basic facts about the marriage, such as whether she and the petitioner shared a post office box, what bank they used for their joint account, and even, on one occasion, the date on which they had been married, end quote. Also looks like she had been living with another man during the marriage and given birth to the child of another man during the marriage. Not the best indicia of a marriage, but hey, different strokes. The IJ relied on that evidence over Mr. Alzeben's affidavits, photos, and financial records of support, and ordered Mr. Alzeben removed. Mr. Alzeben even had an affidavit from his ex-wife, but the IJ gave it little to no weight because she hadn't shown up to court to testify. Still a sworn affidavit, though. I believe there's First Circuit precedent on that, but I'd have to go back and look. Anyway, the BIA affirmed. So to the First Circuit we go. Now, when discussing this, we always talk about how non-citizens must establish that the marriage was bona fide, and that's true, but that's not actually the technical requirement. To the First Circuit, to obtain a waiver of the joint filing requirement and get conditional LPR status removed and become a full-fledged LPR, the petitioning non-citizen must, quote, prove that he had intended to establish a life with his spouse at the time they were wed, end quote says a bit different and more specific. Pretty much the same evidence, though. Prove it was a legitimate marriage. Before the First Circuit, Oil argued, as it does everywhere now, that Patel barred the First Circuit from reviewing the issue because whether to grant the joint filing waiver is actually discretionary. A common theme this week on the podcast. Quote, we think not, end quote, said the First Circuit. The granting or denying of a hardship waiver is not one of the enumerated reliefs of the jurisdiction stripping provision at issue in Patel, and anyway, quote, the determination of whether a marriage was made in good faith requires applying a statutory standard to evidence, end quote. That is, a reviewable mixed question of law and fact. That being said, quote, not all mixed questions of law and fact are mixed equally, end quote and to the extent that there are disputed factual findings about the marriage, the First Circuit said it lacked jurisdiction over that. And thus, it proceeded in this confusing way. To the court, this meant that it couldn't review whether the IJ gave insufficient weight to Mr. Alzabend's evidence over the USCIS evidence. That was a factual dispute. The First Circuit did, however, quote, pause to remark the peculiarity of the IJ granting significant weight to evidence that he did not evaluate directly, but instead gleaned from the USAIS decision denying the joint petition. End quote. But pause only, it did. The First Circuit did address Mr. Alzeban's legal arguments, such as that, quote, it was unlawful for the IJ to consider his former wife's statements during her interview with the USAIS because she was intoxicated at the time, end quote. Man, those are some interesting facts, huh? But there was no proof, said the First Circuit. There were only Mr. Alzeban's allegations of drunkenness, apparently. The First Circuit also disagreed with Mr. Alzeban's second argument. To the court, his wife's affair was indeed relevant to the bona fides of his marriage. Quote, it may be true in some circumstances that infidelity after years of marriage does not signal a lack of good faith by a couple at the time they were wed. End quote. Remember that, everybody. But that doesn't mean that IJs can't consider it. In fact, under First Circuit precedent, IJs can. Ultimately, then, the First Circuit believed the IJ and the BIA's findings were supported by substantial evidence. At best, it saw a, quote, dubious commitment to the marriage by both parties, end quote. So it affirmed. And that is Alzeban v. Garland. I'd like to conclude briefly with City of South Miami vs. Florida Immigrant Coalition Incorporated et al., published by the 11th Circuit on April 13, 2023. In this decision, the 11th Circuit has overturned a decision from a district court judge in the Southern District of Florida that had enjoined portions of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' immigration laws due to their racist nature following a pretty long bench trial. Notwithstanding the evidence gleaned at that trial, the 11th Circuit held that the plaintiffs could not even bring their lawsuit to challenge that law, SB 168, in the first place. Let me step back. In 2019, the Florida Legislature passed a law essentially requiring law enforcement to cooperate with the federal government on immigration and prohibiting, quote, sanctuary policies, end quote. Among other things, SB 168 required Florida law enforcement, paid by Florida taxpayers, to use their best efforts to help the federal government enforce immigration law, and additionally allowed Florida law enforcement to transport non-citizens using Florida resources to federal detention facilities, possibly across state lines. A coalition of nonprofits sued in the Southern District of Florida almost immediately, alleging constitutional violations of many sorts and federal preemption. Eventually, quote, the district court ruled that the transport provision was unconstitutional because it was preempted by federal law and granted summary judgment in favor of the organizational plaintiffs on their preemption claim, end quote. Then, after a bench trial, the judge ruled that the organizations had standing because the law would make the organizations divert limited resources and that the organizations would suffer a chilling effect in the work they did if SB 168 went into effect. Without getting too deep into it, this is standard logic for organizational plaintiff standing, if I'm being honest. The district court also ruled that Governor DeSantis and the Florida legislature's law requirement that Florida law enforcement use their best efforts to help immigration enforcement and the, quote, sanctuary provisions violated the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution because they resulted in a racially disparate impact and were enacted with discriminatory intent, end quote but the 11th Circuit overturned the district court. It did not really dispute the trial findings of racial intent that I just mentioned above. Rather, it held that the immigration organizations who sued, entities that it appears are designed in whole or in part to help immigrants in Florida, could not show that their organizational members would actually suffer harm. So they lacked standing. They can't sue. Who can? No private entity in Florida, it would appear. Naturally, it's complicated because standing always is, but not much more matters. The 11th Circuit doesn't believe the organizations or their members will suffer sufficient harm if and when SB 168 goes into full effect, which it will now. At base, the 11th Circuit believed, quote, if anything, Governor DeSantis would presumably follow the law and seek to curtail the discrimination that SB 168 expressly prohibits, end quote. And that is City of South Miami vs. Florida Immigrant Coalition, Incorporated et al. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli & Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M-Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.